1: So we're back, folks. Part two. This is our new format. So give us feedback. Hop on to Facebook. Um, I'll tell you where all those things—the uh, Twitter, the you know, the Instagram—just let us know what you think of the format. In during our break, we actually had some interesting discussions uh, about some things around intelligence and um, counterintelligence and stuff like that. There, I mean, there's just some interesting stuff out there. We're, we're swapping books uh, back and forth, and so um, yeah, there's there's just some uh, some people do stupid shit. Uh, which what makes your job interesting, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you decided that you wanted to go. So let me ask you this: What made you decide, or how did the process come about? Because you went to the uh, uh, you went to Cal DOJ in '94, and as we were talking, we were sharing names, and we have a name in common, Ed Menavian. And so, Steve, when I was doing my work down at US DOJ on information intelligence sharing, one of the reps we had from California was from Cal DOJ, and I, I said, "What's it? Ed Menavian?" Well. So Terry Gill t- tell tell uh, tell him, Gary, who was Edmund Avian to you? Well Edmund Avian, um, when I first met
2: him, he was a supervisor at B and E in Riverside. And uh he's he's a character. He's 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 a pretty funny guy. He's a great guy. And uh after uh nine eleven, the attorney general, Bill Lockyer, decided that California needed its own organic counterterrorism uh intelligence collection. Um uh, organization, and so he tapped Ed Minavian, um to be um, the chief, and, uh, and Ed tapped me to be the task force commander to stand up the task force in, in uh, Southern California. I had uh, Monterey to San Diego. So I, I owe cool. Ed a lot, but I also – he's a great guy. He's a really good guy.
1: And so we were just talking about the small. I mean, we're sorry. We were talking about it's a small world, right? We're all related by two degrees of separation. I may not know somebody, but I know somebody who knows you, or you know, et cetera.
3: It's amazing. It's amazing, and you know, and it's it's it sounds like it was kind of I don't know. I hate to say this that you patterned it after NYPD, New York PD, but. Um, you know they got agents or police officers stationed all around the world. They've yes. got officers in Israel. They've got them in the in the UK. That's right. We even had one a DEA Special Operations Division permanently assigned there. It's and it's a great tactic.
2: Well, you know what I mean when you're a, when when uh, you're a city. Uh, you know, the size of New York with the, the – the, the, uh, New York is a center of gravity for the United States. Los Angeles is also, but New York is a center of gravity for the United States in terms of the economy, et cetera. Um, you have to do these things. You have to put – as we all know, intelligence is the key to combating terrorism, and you got to have people out there all – you can't just sit around and wait for crumbs to drop from um, from the federal agencies. you got to get out there, and, and, and LAPD has also been historically very aggressive in, in intelligence collection and analysis also, and um, – and they have presence uh, j- outside uh, uh, the borders of the city of Los Angeles as well. They had people in D.C. and at the National Counterterrorism Center and other places. And uh, I worked with uh, with MIPD Intelligence Division um, a couple of times and uh, got shown around the city by one of their detectives, which was great fun. And yeah. – <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I have tremendous respect for their operation, and uh, I know John Miller, uh, you know who was the chief of intelligence at NYPD
1: and was an NBC ABC correspondent. I was about to say, I've met him. I I lectured up at the NY State Police uh, Intelligence Conference. Steve John Miller, he was the guy who got the interview with Osama bin Laden. That's right. That's right. Wow. He's wow. A, he's a he's really he is a true believer, uh,
2: and I. I had a great working relationship with him. And, uh, you know, because we were, you know, we were kind of the new guys on the block uh, in terms of the counterterrorism intelligence thing. And and, and John was brought in post nine eleven, 11. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have nothing but respect for him. He really, uh, you know, he's one he of the good guys. He brought a unique
1: view to it. One of the things I liked about John is he brought a unique view to it. He did bring in a law enforcement background. I mean, you, you think think of this. Here's a guy who found Bin Laden as a news reporter. When all the intelligence, where is where is this guy? He finds him and interviews him.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, hey, we had we had the guy that pulled uh, Saddam Hussein out guy. of the hole. Yeah, out of the damn hole, Kevin <laughs> Holland. Hey, Kevin Holland. <laughs> we 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 know people on this podcast. We know
1: people. Um, That's right. Hey, but I got to ask you one question though. Uh, well, look, let's put this in perspective because I do want to talk about your work on the terrorism. But look. You said like maybe New York was maybe the, the, the one side of it. But when I think of the United States, if I'm attacking something on the East Coast, yeah, New York is the top target. But if I'm thinking of the West Coast, LA is the top target. I mean, oh, you absolutely. guys were top targets for terrorism, top targets because of the economy. And so, yeah, having to build your own uh, capability. I mean, that's just like it seems like a, a duh, but it's not that easy to do, right? I mean, it takes a lot of work. And during that time, did you ever know Rich Mraz over at LAPD? What was the name? Rich, Rich Moraz. He was the commander at Rampart when the whole Rampart scandal went down. No, he no. was doing a lot of ter- anti-terrorism stuff. I think uh, with the Olympics and stuff. So I didn't know if you guys okay. ever crossed paths.
2: No, I, uh, I, I don't believe so. Um, uh,
1: That's it. I mean, there's, there was. You guys were building up to that. So talk about your transition then from, uh, oh, not transition, but Cal DOJ. But how did you, how did you end up getting involved with the? Uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force, um, which really took on a bigger role, obviously, after 9-11. So before 9-11, you had the JTTFs, but they weren't as big of a deal in 99. Correct.
2: Um, I'll backpedal and say that I've always been fascinated by the subject of two subjects, espionage, the world of espionage and counterintelligence and terrorism. And uh, going back to the 80s um, and the Olympics in Los Angeles And so I've kind of always been fascinated by that and had the opportunity uh, when one of our agents was departing to – because I already had the necessary clearances because I'd been working with the Bureau on Public Corruption Cases and other things. So um, I – and I was working intelligence, and so um, I asked for that billet and uh, went to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in 99 – uh, and was assigned to Domestic Terrorism Squad. And that was where most of the locals were on the Domestic Terrorism Squad. Now, you were still a then. Cal DOJ
1: employee at that time, I was a special time, right? agent. Yes, I was a special agent, yeah. Um, why not just a regular agent? Why did you have to be a special agent? Well, that's what they called us. I don't know.
3: Well, that's what they call anybody that wasn't a trooper You know, because you do have investigative abilities.
1: Can you imagine how, hi, I'm not just trooper, but I'm special trooper, right? <laughs> I bet you are. Yeah, yes, you are. <laughs> I think that went back to Jay Edgar. He wanted to distinguish themselves. They were, we just weren't going to be agents. The FBI was going to be Special agents. agents, yeah. Yeah, because you had railroad agents, you had other agents. Hey, you know that? Yeah, look at it, Murphy's shaking his head. Oh, yeah, whatever. You know.
3: <laughs> now, I got asked. I, I was on the witness stand in Miami at one time in a trial, and defense attorney asked me, "What's your title?" And I told him, "Special agent." He's like, "What makes you so special?" And I was ready to answer, and, uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> the prosecutor objected, and the judge jumped out of his chair and told the defense attorney to go sit down. I didn't get a chance.
1: <laughs> well, let me ask you hey, this. Yeah. Agent Murphy, what was going to be your answer if I said, What makes you so special?
3: I said, Let me just slap you one time and see how special you think that is. <laughs> no, I'm joking, everybody. Just joking here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah in
1: federal district court. Yeah, good luck yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's joking. He wouldn't have slapped him one time. He would have slapped him three or four times. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: Before <laughs> the yeah. marshals grabbed me and threw me to the ground. <laughs> yeah. But boy, wouldn't that be cool?
1: <laughs> yeah, that <bam. laughs> one of the things, if on if I kind of just get away with it, you know, I'd would take look what. It would have been a misdemeanor at the most, right? Pay a fine, <laughs> you know. I would uh, take that I would take the misdemeanor.
3: Of, that would have been a career move.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, but imagine real quickly though. W- w- suppose you had secretly won the lottery, and you could have just told everybody, "Hey, fuck off! I can do whatever I yeah. want." You would have done that, wouldn't you? If you if you knew you had ten million waiting for you when this was all over, it would have been, it was worth it.
3: Uh, I tell you what, man, I love being a cop so much. I I don't think I could have done it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, hey, back to our that was a digression. So, in our drinking game, that's digression number two. Back to our regularly scheduled well, podcast now.
3: One, it's this part, but it's number two for both parts.
1: See, I'm keeping track of everything of overall, right? So it's uh, so but in any event, you're taking a drink, so. Woo-hoo. um So, but back to you there, Gary, our special, our special, not just a guest, but a special guest, our special (laughs) Special guest, (laughs) guest. special agent, special guest, uh, special K. Um, so let's talk about this. So what kind of things, what were the big cases before 9-11, but what were the things you were working on from a domestic terrorism that were of interest to the state of California? What, what was getting your attention? Well, in actual fact, um, is there any other kind of facts if they're well, not actual facts? Well, <laughs>
3: <laughs> you good. can slap me. When you say you <laughs> made did. up facts.
1: I mean, are these made up facts? I'm sorry. It's like a defense attorney would do. Oh, in an act, an actual fact, or what other kind of facts are there? But anyway, I'm just kidding. But in but in actuality, yes. Right. Well, in actual in actuality,
2: um, we had uh, uh, a few groups that were. Um, uh, domestic terrorist groups, theoretically, potentially, um, that uh, we monitor, but it wasn't directly. This was, this was, uh, more about me being there. Was more about the state of California or the Department of Justice having a seat there than it was about me doing something specific for the Department of Justice in terms of of, of uh, you know, a specific target that I was working on under the auspices of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. I was assisting um, uh, with um, investigations that were uh, ongoing uh, involving different types of targets uh, that were, um, you know, um, one one involved uh, individuals who uh, potentially were going to uh you know, or had placed a bomb somewhere uh, and they were kind of a, a, a radical religious group um, and um, things like that. Uh, uh, there were not any, there was nothing there that was like super exciting or interesting in terms of, of, of what was happening. Um, uh, they had a domestic terrorism squad. There were things going on. People were working on them. But uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like what was happening on the international side.
1: I don't want to say until 9-11, you know, things changed, obviously, but was there anything that was going on during that time that caused you concern about something coming up? I mean, did you, were you hearing chatter? Because look, we had the, we had the bombings in Nairobi and, and Tanzania. You had the embassy bombings. Al Qaeda was becoming bigger on the scene now. I mean, they were becoming a threat. Clinton was trying to go after bin Laden, you know, trying to hunt him down. Was, was any of that stuff affecting you in California at that time?
2: Well, I was aware of it, um, and uh, was hearing about Bin Laden and other things, um, but um, you know, uh, I'm not sure that all of those things were really being taken seriously back then. You'll recall that, um, gosh, I can't remember the gentleman's name. Uh, you know, the uh, the Bin Laden group at, at the agency was called the the Family. They were kind of like off in the uh, in the uh, off by themselves, someplace. You know what I'm talking about. I think the about. official name was called Alex Station. A guy named Michael Shore was the intelligence. Exactly, but they, they called it Alex Station. But they also called them like the family, like the Manson family, or something. In a way, it was pejorative, you know. And uh, I, you know, the signs were there everywhere. In, in bold letters it was like it was like uh, a, uh, a billboard on Sunset Boulevard but nobody was paying attention to the billboards uh, you know like you said we had uh, we had uh, Tanzania and Nairobi we had uh, pent bomb uh, the World Trade Center uh, attack which you know people don't realize that uh, that could have very easily been uh, uh, an unbelievably devastating attack. Had the bomb uh, been uh, sufficiently engineered and placed correctly, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say too much, but I my my understanding from people is that you know it, it could have dropped a tower and potentially dropped two
1: towers. And in the trial, that's that's where we think that's where some of the conjecture is about how did. To- uh, bin Laden and ISIS, you know, and Al Qaeda learn, I should say, about what to do next time, because a lot of information came out in the trial in terms of what was it structurally designed to withstand, designed to withstand the impact of a 737. You know, these things were all put into the public. By the way, here's an interesting part, too. The way they caught these guys, because they, they recovered the VIN number off the van, like yeah. they did with Timothy McVeigh. And you know what these idiots did? They went back to try to claim, hey, our, our, our Ryder truck was st- stolen. And they were waiting there for him and nabbed him. That's right. That's exactly correct.
2: And, uh, you know, uh, they're not – they do dumb stuff, and thank God they do, because if they didn't do dumb stuff, we'd probably be in a a far greater world of hurt. Um, But they also have some very intelligent, sophisticated people um, that are extremely dangerous and – uh, continue to be so, so we cannot dismiss them as being uh, a bunch of fools uh, they 're deadly serious, and um, they
1: have long memories and they 're not likely to go away anytime soon yeah uh, episode eleven we had uh, two of my friends from the counterterrorism command New Scotland Yard that worked the seven seven oh five train bombings oh yeah and and then the follow up bombing a lot of people don 't realize there were actually two attacks, the second one fizzled out because. Thankfully, these guys weren't as bright as the first ones who unfortunately pulled it off. Was that the, um, the, the one where they had the bomb
2: at, uh, outside a, a discotheque uh, in London, central London, and then they ended up at Glasgow?
1: Uh, no, that's a different one.
2: Okay, um, this, this one—that was this a close one,
1: call. Yeah, all of these, a lot of these were close calls. In fact, that the follow-on attack to the seven seven zero five train bombings uh, fizzled because one of the bombs fizzled out. They—they they didn't make the—they were using hydrogen peroxide, TATP, and uh, didn't have it set. And the other thing too that was funny is one of the ladies uh, that they went to interview called in to complain. She complained because somebody parked in her space, and it was one of the bombers from the second attack. So. But anyway, but like you're saying, fortunately, we don't get, uh, but the thing is, but they're thinking differently than we are about the problem. And that's why they thought differently about how to use planes. But I agree with you. I think out of that thing, they learned a lot of lessons out of that one, which is it's got to be something bigger. They weren't going to get a second shot. You know why? Because they made it virtually impossible to bring anything into the basement of the World Trade Center, you know, one and two without it being scanned and checked. They learned the lessons. But what lesson did we learn? We're always fighting yesterday's wars. Nobody was really thinking about what's coming next.
2: And what's coming next was airplanes. Yeah. The history of mankind, we're
1: always seem to be fighting the last war. Well, let's talk about the turning point for you because um, everybody's got their stories. So many people we've talked to that we didn't realize had stories around 9-11. Obviously, our (laughs) friends in New York, uh, we had Zach on Murph, you know, and we didn't realize how close. He he was in New York City at the DEA office, not too far from now when it was going on. Just Um, on his day. Yeah, let's talk about you though. What with nine eleven, because that had that changed the op tempo. That changed fundamentally the mission of the JTTF. What happened?
2: I actually had promoted in January of two thousand one into internal affairs, and so um, I maintained a sort of quasi liaison uh, role. But my primary mission was internal affairs cases right up until. Uh, September of 2001, I was actually in a training school in Sacramento on 9-11 and woke up that morning and, 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 and saw the, um, the flames coming out of the building and Katie Couric saying, you know, it looks like there's a really bad fire in the trade center. And I'm going, eh, I don't know about that. It looks a little worse than just a fire, <laughs> you know. And, of course, the rest is history. And for the next four or five days, we were all glued to the TVs in between breaks in the class and everything. And then Ed called me up and asked me if I wanted to uh, – told me about what they were doing and asked me if I wanted to uh, be part of it. And I said, hell Yes.
1: Well, not that int- internal affairs we've talked about is a necessary thing. You have to do it right, but I mean, but this this was your chance to get back in the game, get in the mission. Absolutely, um, yeah. W- what what did you end up doing? Uh, in, in terms of standing up the task force. Um, yeah. Well, and, and what was your new mission? What when Ed brought you back? What did he want you to do?
2: Come up with a task force and come up with recruit people. He actually he and uh, uh, my immediate uh, boss, uh, the special agent in charge in LA that I was working for, John Kenny. Um, we all put our heads together to try and figure out um, where we can recruit agents or or officers and uh, from other p- uh, agencies. We had a highway patrol officer. We had uh, a detective and and, and, a, and a sergeant from uh, another South Bay city. Um, and actually two South Bay cities, now that I think about it. Um, and we had liaison from Ventura and Santa Barbara counties and, and uh, Orange County until they stood up a task force in Orange County. And uh, one of the big things that, um, that uh, we did was pick, uh, identify candidates um, uh, that we needed for uh, an, uh, analysts, And uh, that was one of the things that I really think is so important. Uh, uh, Intelligence analysis is critical. Uh, because you have to make sense of all this stuff. Because there's loads and loads of information coming in, and it's just white noise unless somebody can sit down and slog through it and make sense of it and connect the dots, so that the uh, the, the the trigger pullers and the and the the knuckle draggers and the collectors can get out in the field and do their jobs. They need they need uh, they need that. And our role was um, specifically to be an intelligence clearinghouse for other agencies. We weren't really going to be doing criminal cases ourselves. We were strictly an intelligence collection and an analysis unit, and we had our our agents uh, and – Peace officers are collectors. We're building cases that we would hand off to sister agencies like LAPD and the Sheriff's Department and the FBI uh, and other agencies that had, you know. And that's what we did. Uh, that's what we did. We we basically put together cases, got them ready, packaged them up, and handed them off to other agencies. So we we would stay clean and and uh, and and remain in an intelligence. Collection function.
3: So you were you were kind of operating as a deconfliction center as well, right? Well, not really. Well, kind of in a
2: way, but um, we did have a deconfliction component because we also stood up an intelligence clearinghouse uh, in Sacramento um, that was staffed twenty four seven. We had some tremendous analysts up there working, uh, and um, uh, so that became a deconfliction center in a sense. But we also worked very close with LA Clear, which is the deconfliction center in LA, Uh, uh, and uh, because my boss John was also the boss of of uh, of LA Clear, and uh, and so yeah, uh, you know that was a big part of it. But uh, the biggest part of it was um, the analytical component. You know, I had I was lucky enough to have a uh, a native Farsi speaker. On, assigned to me, and um, she was an incredible uh, resource, uh, and uh, you know that's, uh, that's, that's a really important thing to have when you're talking about Los Angeles with the largest Iranian expat community in, in, outside of Tehran, and uh, that's a really good thing. And, uh, and so we had that, and we had other things uh, that really helped us a lot.
3: I didn't know LA had that that large of a oh, yeah. community. Oh yeah, it's wow. huge,
1: it's huge. So I grew up three years in Iran during the days of the Shah. My first foreign language I spoke was Farsi. Oh, there you go. Hafez. I was going to say Hafez. I don't <laughs> know much. <laughs> up yours too.
3: <laughs>
1: first of what the hell is that?
3: <laughs> not no, translated. Up yours was well.
1: You know, that's yeah, no, not up yours. It's not. A, but uh, but. So there is a—but you're working a lot of that, though, but it's very unique, though, because as you move forward in time, what possessed you to say, hey, there's a lot of bombs going off. There's a lot of shooting going off, uh, a lot of bad things happening over in this place. Oh, it's called Iraq. Uh, I'd like to go to Iraq. (laughs)
0: I mean,
2: What's
1: don't you get that you? on a typical afternoon in L.A.? Yeah, well,
2: <laughs> not quite the same. It's definitely not quite it's the same. It's more
1: dangerous than a rock, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Actually, yeah, the 405 freeway is definitely more dangerous than a rock was. Um, in actual fact, uh, the um, the thing uh, was I was nearing uh, my um, my retirement, and I was looking for something to do, and I wanted to stay in the game. And... Uh, I wanted to go to town and see the elephant, basically. I wanted to to go to the belly of the beast and, and, uh, you know, I've been, for me, Middle Eastern terrorism has been something that, that was, or terrorism in general was basically something that was happening a lot of, most of the time in other places. And I kind of wanted to get a, a sense of what it was really all about up close and personal. And, um, and so, uh, I applied to this outfit and uh, was accepted and retired. Well, wait a minute.
1: well anytime so, this outfit? All right, let's be let's be. Uh, what can you say about this outfit? Because I know one of the ones is called Jido. That was the one of the ones dealing with uh, the IED stuff. So, were you DOD? Were you IC? Where were you at? Um. Well.
3: Uh, I was. Uh,
2: you noticed. this. Yeah. No, wow.
3: notice <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, i was embedded. <laughs> I got to be careful with you. You're a trained interrogator. Um, uh, no, I was. In, I was embedded um, with uh, uh, IED defeat intelligence cell uh, in Baghdad with Tenth Mountain. Yeah, close to glory. Somewhere.
1: Well, and funny you should mention that too, because that's Jido uh, uh, was the organization I was talking about, the Joint yes. IED. Um, and I knew some, yeah, defeat, and uh, that was a huge. I mean, tell tell us, people. Well, you know, just reground us on why that was such an important mission, because why was that such an important mission?
2: Well, because I believe I I don't know the statistics, but I mean, certainly from um, the anecdotal evidence that I saw most all of the casualties were being produced uh, by uh, improvised explosive devices, whether there are HME homemade explosives or uh, repurposed uh, artillery rounds or uh, mines or stuff that came in from other places, um, EFPs, all of it. And, uh, you know, when you look at Um, when you look at the evolution of vehicles in, um, in that war, they start out with soft skinned, um, uh, you know, 1151 Humvees and, uh, you end up with up armored Humvees with doors that are six inches or three inches thick and glass and all kinds of other stuff. And then, and also V hold, uh, mine resistant vehicles, you know, uh, MRAPs and Jervs and all of those things and all kinds of other stuff to, you know, uh, uh, countermeasures, you know, uh, that they had uh, to def- to uh, prevent these weapons from being detonated remotely.
3: One question for you, Gary. You mentioned DFPs and, and uh, you know, we asked that you describe all your, your acronyms there. But EFP I don't know if you can
1: do merv curves, you know,
2: swerves, and you know. Well, read the book. It's in the book, actually. No, but an EFP is an explosively formed projectile, and it basically utilizes a copper plate that is cone shaped, and uh, upon detonation of the warhead, it's aimed like a round would be aimed. It forms a um, a superheated jet of copper material, um, that literally is, uh, penetrates through the, uh, the armor of a vehicle and, uh, causes utter devastation inside the vehicle. Um, it's been a long time since I studied these things. So I'm sort of like going off the top of my head about, but, um, they are, um, you know n shaped charges are nothing new; they go back to World War two and probably before world war two um but this is this was a new wrinkle because it was a a um, a specifically designed um, uh, uh, charge that used uh, a, a copper plate that was shaped in a concave
1: uh, uh, disc
3: yeah, it helps you focus the direction of the explosive.
1: This is going to shock you, Murph, but uh, Gary, where where did uh, are these all these insurgents in Iraq? Where did they learn about EFPs? And who is maybe the one country behind bringing a lot of those into the country? I'll
2: give you one clue: Hoda
1: Hafez, Hoda Iran, <laughs> the Cuds force. That's right, Iran. That's they right. they have been involved in killing American uh, soldiers. And by the way, I got uh, I can't go I can't um, not mention this too because one of the guys I used to work with, his son, who was a friend of mine, was killed. Uh, in Mosul, Iraq, on uh, August 1st, 2007. Uh, He was with one of the security forces, Kansas Army National Guard, was killed by an IED. Yeah, yeah. Sergeant Travis Bachman um, and his dad, Rodney Bachman, just passed away here recently. But yeah, it's... uh, uh, we were in baltimore and a uh, good friend of my wife's we were in baltimore at a apco conference the association of public safety communicators when they got the news that day that he had been killed in that attack cuz both his mother and father worked at the police department yeah i
2: i I've, i i used to see the images when they would come to um, come to our cell of the aftermath of these attacks and uh it's not pretty not pretty at all it
3: leaves a lasting effect doesn't it yeah
2: yeah it does and when you look at when you look at the the mine resistant uh m mrap mine resistant and uh ambush protected that's what it means mine resistant ambush protected uh vehicles um i mean they're not they're not built for the conventional battlefield they're tall they're huge targets they're easy to shoot at but when you're dealing with with a counterinsurgency situation where you're, where your opponent you know is uh, not playing according to the rules and you know bearing you know these devices in, in the on the roadways you have to have a V-hole to jet to uh, to deflect the blast away from the hull
1: and of course uh, that's the genesis of these vehicles Uh, One of the guys I knew actually was a barista, believe it or not, at Starbucks, but he always wanted to do something different. He ended up working for a company that were doing a lot of the uh, up-armoring and the MRAP stuff. There is a place over in West Virginia, Murph, where uh, you just don't get in Humvee and say, hey, let's up-armor it. They had to actually take people over to a course because all the vehicle dynamics change once you start adding all of this weight and everything. They had to learn how to drive it, how to maneuver it differently. It's not just a Humvee, you know, like say thin skin, you know.
3: Your center of gravity changes, and that thing will flip over in a heartbeat.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And and go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, tell us now about getting into a wreck. So you, you join this thing. Uh, it's one thing to learn about it, but it's another thing to get deployed. So... You go now from being uh, Manhattan Beach, you know, um, uh, being Beverly Hills. This has to be a sharp, <laughs> sharp contrast with Beverly Hills, right? Uh, yeah. Where, where do I park my Mercedes at? Is there a valet here?
2: <laughs> yeah, well. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't never been in the service. It was uh, just a tiny, tiny bit of a shock uh, to be suddenly thrust into uh, into uh, the the world of the United States Army, and the world of the United States Army that is deployed is even more of a shock to that the delicate sensibilities of a of a civilian
1: cop. Uh, but now, hold um, on, though, I got to ask you one question, though. How did that conversation go with your wife? Because I can't imagine she was going, "Hey." Is this a – this sounds like a good idea. Hey, honey. Well, you know, uh, my
3: wife – I, I, mean,
1: I told you that I wanted you to do something. I just didn't say go to Iraq to do that. <laughs>
2: <you know>? Exactly. <laughs> she knew that I was sort of a true believer in this whole world of counterterrorism and that this is what uh, – and, and my wife is tremendously supportive. She's been su- way incredibly supportive of me throughout my entire career through all of the things through narcotics and having babies and you know that world. I mean, you know, you're never home and you're on surveillance all the time and you're in all that other stuff. And she has always been a thousand percent behind me. And, and, um, and I know that, you know, based on what she's told me and what other people have told me, I mean, she was scared to death the whole time I was gone. And, uh, because, you know, um, she was in the in the the news business, and um she would be involved to uh, with uh you know reporting on these stories not report- as a reporter but producing these stories you know coming out of Iraq about you know x number of soldiers killed and things like that the The truth was the truth is that I never heard a hostile shot fired. I heard lots of happy fire I saw lots of happy fire um and in two thousand and eight uh you know things had calmed down pretty dramatically it wasn't 2004 2005 you know 2006 where things were pretty wild and um at least in my experience uh which was pretty much um i did leave the i i left victory base which is where i worked um and uh originally i was supposed to go to uh uh a unit that was in Solder city uh, and unfortunately, they saw that I'd been a task force commander, so they pulled me off of that assignment, which I really was actually anxious to do, and uh, put me in charge of uh, a bunch of other laps, uh, which what we were called, uh, and uh, put me in charge of a bunch of other ones. What does that uh, stand for? Law enforcement professional. Leps. Yeah. And put me Good in charge of Good thing it wasn't law
1: enforcement professionals retired. That would have been a leper then. Right. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh and, and on phone, so, thank you. <laughs> so I was uh, you know, I, I uh, oversaw the, the operations of a bunch of other guys that are spread out through southern Iraq. Uh, in addition to my, my duties
1: with uh, the uh, intelligence cell. So, what were your duties, uh, the, to the extent you can disclose those things? I mean, what were you there to do? I was pr- there
2: primarily to provide them, as you as you know, the war had devolved um, to uh, uh, you know an asymmetric counterinsurgency war, uh, and had many aspects that uh, are similar to dealing with organized crime uh, organizations and narcotics trafficking organizations in terms of the similarities in their modus operandi and that kind of thing. And um, so that was one of the things that I was brought in to, to, to lend my expertise to. And not only that, though, at that point in time, um, the uh, US uh, – the coalition forces – Had to utilize um, the Iraqis' uh, the Iraqi justice system, so that meant that um, and had to bring along Iraqi army, Iraqi police on operations. So that meant that now you have GIs having to do evidence collection and you know, and things that normally a police officer does, now combat soldiers are having to do and they're not really trained up for it. So that was one of the other things that I did. So I landed that my perspective on that. I wrote a paper on How to process a a shooting scene, a sniper shooting scene. You know what to what to look for. What kind of evidence is important? How to safeguard the evidence so it's not contaminated? Because we did have DNA labs. We had very sophisticated labs over there, um, and uh, and we had access to other labs back at at actually uh, at Quantico, and uh, also we had um, uh, we also um, uh, did. asset forfeiture, because as we all know, money is what makes the world go around and helps criminal organizations, uh, operate. And, uh, you know, these, these bombings, uh, were frequently, uh, more of a money-making venture than an ideological, uh, adventure. And so, uh, when you take their money or you find out who is daddy Warbucks, who's financing it, you can, uh, You can uh, make things very difficult for them to operate, as you well know. And so um, that was one of the other things that I worked on with uh, uh, a colleague. And and then he left and I finished uh, the the deal uh, where, uh, you know, a procedure was created for the collection of funds when they're encountered during a raid.
1: Wow. I I go back to Murph. I go back to episode 56. We had one of the guys who became a friend of ours, but you met him at a conference, Jeff Sandy. Jeff was an IRS agent that went over to Iraq. And you know what? He ended up interviewing and debriefing Tariq Aziz to drill down on all of the seized assets, the oil for food scam that was going on. That was part of his job to see is from a different aspect, but where's the money going and how do we recover these billions and billions of dollars that Sodom and, uh, you know, his sons and the other folks had uh, um, stolen and pilfered from the country.
2: I actually, I actually liaisoned with, uh, with some IRS agents, CID agents over there when I was trying to come up with this, uh, with this uh, uh, proposal.
3: I'll tell you what, when you're going after the financial side of it, there, there's no better investigators there That's than right, the IRS. Yeah. They're top notch.
2: Yep, they are. They are. Boy, they definitely put the fear of God in a in a subject when. Uh... When you find out the IRS is coming after you,
1: <laughs> it may take them a while, but boy, when they come, it's not good. Don't you guys just love it in the mail when you walk out there and there's that envelope and it's that distinctive envelope that says Internal Revenue Service and you're like, do I want to open this or not? <laughs>
3: you don't want to, but you better. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, remember Al Capone went to jail, not for exactly. killing you people. For exactly. Evading exactly. taxes. Yeah. Exactly. Right now,
3: right now, I'm kind of avoiding those or, or dreading getting those from the West Wisconsin Department of of taxation. Why? It's just anything with has tax on it. Well, you know, we we made money in there in in nineteen, in twenty nineteen, and then uh, you know we haven't since. But they're trying to charge me tax for twenty twenty, and they want to add a thirteen thousand dollar tax bill, and you know, late payment. What? We've got, it, we've got it down to a couple hundred bucks, but now we're you know trying to get rid of that. It it's just c- continues on and on and on. I have to say though, they're nice about it. Lots well, good. Like, That's good. Kiss you on the cheek before they shove it up your, you know what. (laughs) Uh,
1: uh, And we didn't think you were going to get a happy ending out of this one. Here
3: we are digressing.
1: Digressing. There's the third digression. Uh, Back to your drinking game. Taking a shot. Two for this episode. So what I want to do is kind of drill down on that because we want to leave some time too to talk about your book, but. Um, you did this, uh, you worked on this and like I said, in 2008, that's when you deployed. How long did you do this? Because you also ended up, what's unique to you came back though to California, but then you couldn't stay away. You ended up going to SOCOM. You ended up going down to Tampa. So talk about how long were you in Iraq and what kind of things did you do ultimately before you ended up coming back to the U S? Uh, I was in Iraq for five,
2: five, about five, five and a half months. And I came back and um, I was actually – I I tested uh, and got hired by a, another outfit and was going to do something even more interesting. But unfortunately, I discovered that I needed a hip replacement, so that ruined that. So I was on the beach um, for
1: about a year after I came back and – we- but tell people when we say on the beach, we don't like, I mean, you mean there's, you're around a beach, but when you mean on the beach, what do you mean by that from a contracting standpoint? Well, euphemistically, I mean that I was basically at
2: home, um, which is actually when I started writing the book in 2009. But, um, and then I got hired, actually, the, the progression is I got hired um, uh, to work as a, uh, uh, an investigator uh, analyst, intelligence analyst, uh, terrorism guy on the uh, detainee cases, the military commissions cases. And, um, and then I did that, uh, and then did I had- Did you travel op- down to – did you get a chance to go to Gitmo? Yes, I did. I went to- How was that, um,
1: How was that experience, flying into Cuba? It was very interesting.
2: Um, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and I'm still not sure which side of the island is the island that you fly into. It's windward or leeward. But there's, a, there's an airstrip. There's a naval air station on one side of the island, and you fly into there, and we would fly commercial out of Andrews, Okay. Which was also interesting because I used to see Air Force One all the time when I'd fly down to, which is kind of cool, you know, that's pretty cool, and uh, and then fly down commercial to uh, to Guantanamo and then take a um, a Navy contract. Um, barge basically across the bay to the other side where the courtrooms and the commissaries and the bars and all the fun stuff is, is on the other side of the island. And it's really fascinating. It was a very interesting place, a very historical place. I'm a historian guy, and uh, there are remnants of the Spanish American War and, you know, old battleship moles all over the harbor, and just really, it was a cool place. And the bar was. The tiki bar was fun, very fun, and um, the food was not awful. And uh, the uh, we stayed in uh, the bachelor officers' quarters, uh, so the quarters were good. Uh, and it was just a very, very interesting uh, experience, really fascinating experience.
3: They had commercial flights flying to Gitmo. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was commercial flights because you had you had all these civilians um, flying over there. Uh, most of them reporters from all over the all over the world basically, uh flying to Guantanamo to cover these trials. And well, now
3: you were part of the Office of Military Commissions doing that, right? That's correct. And you, where were you living at the time?
2: I was living in uh, uh Pentagon City. Actually I'll tell you a funny story about that. I was living in the same I was living in the same high rise that remember the Russian spy ring with the uh the 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 redhead Anna r- Chapman <laughs> and <Anna Chapman in laughs> yes. the pen.
1: I used to see her
2: and her, and her buddies around the pool at the, at the, at the, uh, at the place I was staying at. And I was like, whoa you know and and then one day i come back from one of my uh adventures and here's a bunch of uh here's a bunch of fbi ray jackets walking in collecting stuff and then the next day i hear it was, they
1: just they just rolled up a big spy ring living in the building i was in it was pretty funny
2: very
3: cool yeah, was they, funny.
1: Were, what, they were part of the russian intelligence svr that was i think called operation ghost stories that was one of the longest they were all russian illegals here what we would call non-official covers yeah
3: what, what years were you doing the, the Office of Military Commission thing?
2: Uh, that was in 2010. That was in 2010.
3: And were, did you work out of the office there in Tyson's?
2: No. I worked, um, I worked uh, in um, Alexandria on Wilson.
3: Uh, and the reason I'm asking, do you remember the general that was in charge of it back then? Mm-mm, one no. star.
2: I worked for a, I worked for a um, a jag officer, a, 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 a Marine uh, Colonel.
3: Well, and here's the reason I asking these questions. I sound like a defense attorney here, trying to. Grill Why do
1: you, you sound right? like an interrogator. Now, where were you on this night, and what were you wearing? Because
3: <laughs> <laughs> in uh, I want to say 2014 to 15 for one year. Um, I only did it for one year. My buddy did it for two years. Tom Slovanky, he's a retired DEA agent. We were picked up on a contract to go work in the Office of Military Commissions there in Tyson's and and actually where the general is and the prosecutors and all that. Um, And the initial project was to review all the cases in Gitmo, which sounds exactly like what you were doing down there.
2: Well, in actual fact, though, I was on the other side of the table. I actually was working for the defense, which was fascinating.
3: Oh, we, got to, we got to end the interview. Yeah, said, so, Hi, interview's <laughs>
2: <over>. <laughs> no, it was actually really fascinating because obviously, my entire career, I've been on the other side. And um, in this particular instance, I was working uh, with uh, the JAGs that were on the defense side and some civilian attorneys. So it was very, very interesting.
1: Really fascinating. A couple questions about that. Um, because it has taken forever. I mean, the military in some ways is really good because if they if they have to, they can move stuff. But when it comes to the legal process, we've been dicking around with this for twenty years. Ever since Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was caught and rendition had his ass renditioned back to Pakistan. I, I mean, we can't get a trial, and it's been twenty years.
3: Well, you know, and that's that's one of the things when we when Tom and I went into to this position. And we started doing our research, and we were waiting to get our special security badges so we could go to get Mo and do all the de- you know, things that needed to be done. Um, we realized that some of those detainees at that time had been in custody for 14 years. You know, we went to the general. It's like, what is it you think that we're going to find that you don't already know about? You know, he's, he's the chief prosecutor. I wish I could remember his name. He was a super guy. I love the guy to death. Well, um, the people I met but, were pretty and, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know we eventually after we realized you know you're just spinning your wheels we we came up with another plan involving ISIS and well it's all change.
1: politics as you well know it's all politics it, it, so it, did it, you get a chance to meet any of the original nine eleven uh, conspirators? No, no. no. If you had, could you have just tossed a grenade in there and just <laughs> sped along the, the wheels of justice? Come I didn't on, have them did with me.
3: Now, <laughs> in, oh, look at what did, I dropped. Did you participate in any waterboarding events, Dana? Come on now, Gary
1: no. Enhanced Murph—they're
3: called enhanced
1: interrogation techniques.
2: <laughs> I got it. I got it. No. Did, you,
3: did you meet KSM?
2: No, I didn't. I worked with people who worked with him, but I did not meet him.
3: I mean these are some these are some legitimate bona fide worldwide international terrorist badasses.
1: Well look, you're not in you're not in gitmo unless number one you got there are obviously renditions involved, but I mean you had to be a military combatant, but you had to be you had to be high value enough to where it made sense to put you in gitmo. Right. Exactly. Um I was there um about well,
2: I I was working in that in that on that uh assignment uh, for a company for about seven months and then an opportunity uh, presented itself to bring me back to LA and um, for the same company. So I did that and I did that for two years and I worked for the Long Beach Police Department, Office of Counterterrorism. Uh, for that
1: company or as, as for an that, actual No, employee? no, uh, for that company. So you were a contractor back into Precisely. them to do that, yes. Yeah.
2: And uh, I love that. I and love the guys that work like with. a
1: ManTech or you know somebody these folks that do a lot of that kind of work. So now, we see it, them a lot. We see them out there a lot. This the, I don't think that this company is around anymore. They were pretty
2: big for a while, but I think that, as they all do, I think it got bought by another company and the name has changed.
1: They do. They all they all consolidate. Correct, but correct. Um, what so? But you moved coast to coast. So you went from California. You went to Virginia, right? And then um, where? Where did you? You said you lived in Pentagon City. Anywhere else? Did you? Do, where you lived out out here in Virginia? Well, initially, I lived in. Uh, an
2: awful place on Wilson Boulevard, but it was like – it was really close to where the office was, but it was awful. And uh, so an opportunity presented itself in, uh, in Pentagon City, and there was a really great Irish bar across the street called uh, Slanté. You guys know? Slante. Slante. Yeah, Slante. Slante. And, and Slante. Uh, DEA's uh, museum is nearby there, uh, a few blocks away from there in Pentagon DEA's City. DEA's
1: museum is next to a bar, close to a bar. Who would well, have thought Well, not quite, but <laughs> close enough.
2: Drunk
3: every afternoon. What do you expect? You know? <laughs> right. we, got, we got a reputation with us through here.
2: <laughs> but uh, so I came back and worked that for a couple of years. And, and then my name was uh, sent. Over to uh, uh, by one of the people I worked with uh, at uh, on the detainee cases was sent to some friends of theirs at Socom and um, and then I went to work at Socom for about six months and uh, then I came home and
1: what was it just a TD wire did you did when you went to so yeah so- Socom Special Operations Command down in Tampa so um, what. By the way, I got an interesting aside for you. So, in 2012, I was the senior law enforcement advisor for the Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. Several of us got brought over to uh, CENTCOM, mm-hmm. which is at McDill.
2: Right. That's where I was. A, too.
1: Right. Yeah. For a class, we had classified briefings and all that good stuff. But we got to do something to this day. You talk about giving shivers. Um, we were brought into what's called the CPOC, the central point of command. And they were showing us, here's what we do. Here's how we manage stuff around the globe. Cause CENTCOM, you have all the different commands, AFRICOM, CENTCOM, PACCOM, you know, all these different things. So, but we got brought into what's called the FPOC, the forward point of command. And it was like, okay. I, I've, and I've told this story before to a couple others, but it's like, oh, this is going to be cool. We brought in, he said, this, I said, show me which phone, cause out of the desk, came up this if the desk was flat until you hit a button and then out of it came banks of computers and phones and everything that's where they launched operation neptune spear from and i said which oh, phone wow. and he pointed it to it i touched the phone that's the raid to get bin laden so when wow, they eventually hell. got bin laden it was launched out of uh centcom there in uh, MacDill.
2: yeah yeah and admiral mcraven was uh was uh the uh the commander at socom when i was there I and I'm t- I I'm Who
1: was the commander? I met the, I met the, uh, deputy commander, uh, major general Carl Horst. Uh, we got the challenge coins from him, but I was trying to think who the commander was, but yeah, but the, the, this was, I mean, like you say, it's awesome to think, you know, think about that stuff, but why six months? Was that just, you decided that was enough or had it run its course or, uh, why well, did you stay I, longer? I was tired of being away from home. I really wasn't loving what I was doing.
2: I was kind of, uh, frankly, I was, I was, kind of bored with it i didn't I, and uh i uh i needed to be home and uh and that was it and i an opportunity came up um that would allow me to work from home uh with the company that i currently work for the greece police uh and
1: uh you know, right, that's the like in G R E A S E the Greece police or the Greece C R E E the country of Greece police. No, no,
2: it's it's G R E A S E. I work for Darling Ingredients International uh, in corporate security for them.
1: Uh, see, I was joking with you, the Greece uh, police.
2: Yes, yes, indeed. But we euphemistically called the Greece police.
3: I want to translate that that statement you said, where you know you needed to be home. Translated, that means your wife called and you. Said, "Honey, enough of this shit. Get your ass home."
2: Kind of actually, somebody else called me and told me, You need to get home, your wife needs you. And I said, Okay, because I'm not really digging this anyway. So, you know, and, and my wife and family need me, so
1: let's go. And uh, that was it. Hey, so, a couple things before we talk about your book. I want to ask you, when you came back from Iraq, what was it like to land back on U.S. soil? Oh my gosh, it was incredible, it was, but it was
2: exhausting because it was this marathon trip um it was on again off again typical typical military operation hurry up and stand, be standing in formation at 0 0500 and, and, wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then at 1700, the
1: army, hurry up and wait. Exactly.
2: And at like seventeen eighteen hundred, 1800, they go, oh, you know what? The flight's been scrubbed. Come back tomorrow at 0500. And then you sit around and wait, wait, wait. And then finally you get loaded on buses and they take you to Kuwait City Airport. And, uh, and you get on the big plane and uh, we flew to uh, Leipzig, Germany. And then uh, Bangor, Maine, and then um, what's that? What's that? Uh, is it Fort Dix uh, in New Jersey? In New Jersey, yeah. yeah. And then um, and then uh, uh, Fort Benning was it? Yeah, Fort Benning. Yeah. And um, and then you turn in all your gear and go through the out processing and all that. And uh, uh, they wanted me, and I was exhausted. But they wanted my my, my sister lived in Greenville, South Carolina. And she was gonna pick me up, but unfortunately something happened and she couldn't pick me up. So I didn't have a ride. So this this uh this this young captain, female captain, who was processing everybody, she says, Sir, I'm sorry, but I can't let you go because you don't have a ride here. And I said, Captain, I'm out of here. I ain't spending another night on an army base. I'm done. Goodbye. And I said, Can you just get me somebody to the airport so I can pick up a rental car? And I did. And I and I that was a long drive. From, uh, from Columbus, uh, Georgia to uh, to Greenville, South Carolina, but I made it in one piece. But it was it was so strange because everything was green, and I hadn't been around green like that in a long time, and it was just so surreal. It was really – it took a long time to get used to it. It really did. It was very strange. And I had a cough for a while too from breathing all the dust and crap,
1: you know, and uh, for How many months, people right have developed months. stuff. Yeah, so many people have developed stuff. Hey, well, let's let's end on a fun note because you came. You said you started your book back like around 2008, and let's talk about your book because it was just published, as they say, published. And you and I were talking books outside the wire, published August 30th, 2022. And now, let me just read the little bit of the the, the cover of the book so people know what we're talking about and see where this. Let me think where the idea for this book came from. Outside the Wire vividly portrays the story of Rick Sutherland, retired LAPD detective lieutenant, now serving in Iraq as an embedded civilian counterterrorism advisor and major Nancy Weaver, an army doctor. When Rick is wounded in a mortar attack, he meets Nancy, and after a few missteps, a relationship develops between them. Nonetheless, they risk everything, including their burgeoning romance while battling clandestine Iranian operatives, (laughs) bent on the slaughter of thousands of innocents and ultimately the destruction of America. It's a race against time. Let me think where you might have got the idea for this book from. <laughs> I can't
2: imagine. I think it was a trip to Disneyland. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, I had uh, – uh, the genesis for this story was one one day uh, I was walking back to my hooch from uh, the chow hall, and I uh, – during that, that – uh, sitting with some other guys, I'd heard that there had been another suicide on the base, And I was aware of an attempted homicide at another FOB, Forward Operating Base, and um, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if a retired detective such as moi was brought in to help with a multiple victim homicide investigation like a Ten Little Indians kind of thing, Uh, Agatha Christie kind of mystery, and – I brought that idea home with me and quickly decided that that wasn't the idea I wanted to go with, that I wanted to make it an international terrorism story. And and so that's what it is.
3: Well, did, uh, did your wife have questions about, uh, you know, somebody in your position and Nurse Nancy, Major Nancy, the doctor?
1: Who's this doctor again? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Was I, hey, everybody, I read the book and I'm, I'm telling you right now, I highly recommend reading this book. It's Thank an easy you. read. It's a quick read. It will keep you interested. It's a nice plot in there. There's uh, some surprises that I'm not going to tell you about, but um, but you need to find out about Nurse Nancy.
2: Uh, well, Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor, doctor, yes. doctor doctor Nancy doctor. Weaver, MD. Yes. yes. Major
3: doctor, yes. Nurse Nancy.
1: <laughs> Major doctor. Well, uh, uh, was major doctor a major problem when you got back home?
2: <laughs> no, in actual fact, no. Uh, uh, it was not. Um, that was that. Obviously, that was all fiction. Uh, there's there's a lot that did happen to me that is in the book. Um, uh, many of those things did happen to me. Uh, I did get Saddam's revenge, and I did meet a doctor, and she did, she called it bubble guts, but she was uh, that was as far as it went. <laughs> she was a lovely person and very funny and very nice, but, uh, you know, uh, that was, uh, so there were a lot of things. There's a lot of the book that was drawn from my own experiences there. Uh, but, uh, it is a novel.
3: I was just wondering that when your wife, uh, Read the the manuscript. She said, "Honey, you got some spleen in
2: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. But you know,
3: it is the the you know, and what I like about the book is you put in a lot of the intricate bullshit rules that the military has. <sighs> oh my for god. Civilians. Oh lord. And it is just outrageously <sighs> ridiculous.
2: Oh my god! I'll never forget one day I'm in a mess hall over at uh, Camp Striker. And I'm with some of the guys I work with. And, you know, I'm in Army combat u- uniform, and I have an M9 Beretta on my hip, uh, but it is unloaded as per the regulation. And I'm thinking to myself, you know. Of course, I know, I know.
1: Nothing strikes terror into the hearts of you know attackers is knowing you have an unloaded weapon. Yeah, exactly. Which is probably why, which
2: is probably why you have so many of these blue on blue Blue, attacks uh, because the guys are walking around with empty weapons, which is just like so stupid. But in any event, um, this this E five comes up to me and he says, uh, "You know, your your weapon's off safe," and I'm thinking to myself why are you, A, why are you looking at me that hard? And B, you know, (laughs) why do you care? The damn thing is unloaded. The magazine well is empty. I mean, it's just dumb. It just really is dumb. You know, we, you know, we were cops for, you know, decades and decades. We're used to carrying a gun all the time. And to be told that when you're in a combat position, you're in a combat zone that you have to walk around and on a base shared by a rocky army, people who, one of which actually pointed a dishka, which is, you know, the Russian equivalent of 50 caliber machine gun at me when I'm in my PT gear, zero threat whatsoever. The guy's grinning at me. He trains a dishka on me as they're leaving their little compound in, in a, I mean, I mean, what the hell, you know? and oh, i bet he had ammo though didn't he? oh though? he certainly did there was a it was locked and loaded i saw the i saw those funny little copper things looking at me in in the in the breach of the you know in the uh the action of the weapon so yeah oh yeah i mean it, it, there was a myriad of bizarre things that I, I went to a targeting meeting one time and i'll never forget this uh it was like okay this is cool i'm gonna go to a division targeting meeting we're gonna talk about blowing bad guys up and all this stuff and they're talking about chickens and water i shit you not chickens and water
1: was this code for something
2: i don't think so i don't think so sadly it was was not it was not and um it was bizarre
3: i'll I'll guarantee you Attorneys have come up with this plan,
1: yeah,
2: wow. because I oh,
3: went to oh, I, absolutely. Went, I went to I went to a meeting in Socom that was it was Tom Slovinki and I we were the only two non attorneys in a whole room full of attorneys for two or three days, listening to them make decisions on how you run a war, and it is the scariest thing I think I've ever heard in my life that God bless our troops out there, you can be under fire, I mean taking rounds, and there's air support. That could respond within less than 60 seconds, and they've got to get permission from an attorney before the Fuck air support that. see that's it was unbelievable.
1: That's the biggest problem, too, they had over at the agency with people and other folks in the intelligence community. Nobody wants to take a risk anymore because attorneys are waiting to hoist somebody on their own petard, you know, and make examples out of people. It's like because they are so risk averse. Well, God, you're in a combat zone or you're you're trying to run exactly. ops against the Russians and the Chinese. There is this thing called risk. You need to be able to take risks you know, so you can get the
2: ultimate rewards. I mean, can you imagine these kinds of restraints in a a global conflict like like World War II? Do you think things like people were even considering something like this back then? I guarantee you there was no attorney on Eisenhower's staff
1: when they were thinking about (laughs) D-Day. Oh, my God.
2: No, no. I mean, it's just— Can you you imagine if there was,
1: though? Well, we got—I it. think one of them would have been shot and thrown out and said, oh, look, accidentally shot himself five times in the back. Yeah, You know— <laughs> uh, I think, uh,
2: uh, Murph, I think you're 100% correct that, uh, that uh, it's the lawyerization of, of the military, lawyerization of law enforcement, um, that is really a, a problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, it costs lives. People Absolutely. lose their lives because of it.
3: And the public will never know. That's and the, the public will never know. Mm. Well, if they listen to Game of Crimes, they'll know. <laughs> they'll know,
1: by God. you listen to us. Uh, so, hey, look, guys, this is uh, as we get in our new format. We're going to bring this to an end because we're trying to keep these things around an hour, make them easy for you to consume. But Let me tell you what. you got to go to our website, okay? So here's what you guys do. You don't go anywhere, Gary. You just hang on there, right? So we hope you guys enjoyed that. Head on over to our website, though, because we're going post to post his book. Up there and you're gonna be able to get to it and you guys got to read it because he's also got a script option so we need to make sure that uh, he gets visibility on that so hit on over to Apple uh, and Spotify get those five stars right Gary that just tell them they have to hit the five stars you don't know why just tell them they have to do it five stars right? five stars five stars right head <laughs> on over to game or our website like I said that's where we're gonna put his uh, book up there and I'll tell you what if you're not reading his book if you're not reading outside the wire, you need to be, you need to be. So uh, go it's there. It's an
3: excellent book. And then we need to put his website up there too. So people we'll put it in Gary Edgington
1: uh, author. So Gary edgington author.com. You can go to, but that'll all be in our show, our webpage there. So follow us on that thing. They call social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes, podcast on Facebook and the Instagram and go to PayPal. But where you got to be, I'm telling you and where you got to be too, Gary, where do you got to be Murph? Where do everybody have to be to get not only this content, but even better content.
3: Oh, you got to come over and check us out on Patreon. There's a, a ton of extra comment over there that our content. I'm sorry, probably more than we have on a regular podcast. Well, we have podcast, comment so.
1: and content. We comment on our content. Oh, yeah, we've got <laughs> a lot
3: more comment on that. <laughs> so, so, a lot of things that we don't normally say on a regular podcast, but it's everything from we're rating cop movies to we're having episodes on you can't make this shit up, which is some of the hilarious most hilarious and stuff. Speaking of that a
1: year ago, we rated for Christmas the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. And we actually had one of the guys from LAPD SWAT. Yep. Rick Massa. Who, was, who took down the, the North Hollywood Bank uh, robbers. Oh, uh, we came on. We did, the real, we did the real analysis of Die Hard. And this month, it's going to be Clint Eastwood. So we got some
3: Clint Eastwood movies to talk oh, cool. about. Yeah. Oh, Dirty my God. Who? Yeah. Dirty who? So, Dirty Harry. But come and check us out. Check us out on Patreon. See what you like. See what you don't like. Let us know what your comments are. Just because we don't agree with what, he, what each of us says doesn't mean we have to be enemies. So come on over and check it out.
1: Yeah, but you, you want to agree with us after listening to us. You realize we were right all the time. Yeah, you'll right? feel sorry
3: for us and you'll want to so, stay.
1: So patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. One more time, if you're on Quaaludes, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Head on over there and have fun with us. But hey, look, we couldn't have done this without our special guest. Not a guest, but our special guest. Gary Edgington, I mean, cop extraordinaire, super secret agent doing stuff. We don't know for who, really, but he's over there in Iraq, you know, uh, so calm coming back. But hey, good luck on your book, Outside thank the you. Wire.
2: Thank you very much. Thank
1: you for being a special guest. And thank you guys for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the original, unadulterated, and always special game of crimes.